In the book of Esther, we've been talking about the providence of God. Well, today in Esther chapter 6, we're really going to see the providence of God because the hand of the Almighty is working through a series of circumstances, and it's not even in people that purport to be followers of him. A pagan king and some pagan peoples are going to be ultimately doing the will of God. Hi. My name's Glenn, and this is Steve. We are Reasoning Through the Bible. We do verse-by-verse Bible study through the Word of God. Today, we're in Esther chapter 6, and we're going to see the king get into a circumstance where he does some things that are in the will of God. On last session, Glenn, you mentioned that Esther delays to the next day to another banquet for Haman and the king to come back. You said, we were not told why. Maybe she lost her nerve. Uh, Maybe she had it planned that way from the beginning. But we're going to see what God is going to do with that extra day. That's where this providence comes in, because through God's actions here, we're going to see that the tables are turned on Haman. At the end of chapter 5, we have Esther, who has invited the king and Haman to a banquet, and they've left in a good mood. Esther has asked for an additional banquet the next day. And we see what happens to the king in the meanwhile. That's the scenario as we open up Esther chapter 6. If you have your copy of the Word of God, read along with us. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Steve, even in just those three verses, we see the hand of God acting here. We have the king... It just so happens that he couldn't sleep. It just so happens that he asked for the records to be read to him. Now, I could imagine, Steve, these records would have been quite boring. And if I was having trouble sleeping, I could easily see how someone reading a lot of meeting minutes for official records would be quite boring and put you to sleep. That and we also see this king where he seems to be disjointed. This plot and these two eunuchs that were put to death, this wasn't something small. This was a plot to assassinate him, a plot to take over the kingdom. So that's not a minor thing. But yet when this is read back to him, he goes, that Mordecai, yeah, that, well, what was bestowed? What reward was given to him? He doesn't know what's going on in his own kingdom, even for something as important as a plot to overthrow him. God's hand providentially helps where he's not able to sleep. The king, he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for entertainment. He could have asked for wine. He could have asked for some people to come in. He could have asked for anything he wanted. He just happened to ask for the records and the chronicles of the government business. And the the reader who was reading it just so happened to turn to just the spot where it talked about Mordecai and uncovering the plot to assassinate the king. Series of events that are all in God's timing and all in God's providence 
God is clearly at work here because without this, then the next events in the last half of the chapter wouldn't happen. We see just more in this long string of God's providential acts. If we were to ask what caused the king's insomnia, it was Almighty God that caused the king's insomnia. What caused the reader to read just that spot with Mordecai? God caused that. What caused them to initially forget to reward Mordecai in the first place? Well, God caused all that. But it's also the case that human events, the biology of whatever the king had at the banquet kept him up all night. That's why we see God's hand at work through all these circumstances. Steve, can we see God working in circumstances in our lives today. Whenever I've seen that in my life, many times it's after the fact. It's whenever I look back and see the events that happened, that's where you see God was at work and had his hand in the things that were going on. We don't, we don't always see it when it's happening, but for sure, when you look back, you can see now some people might say, oh, that's what a coincidence that that just so happened. But if you're a believer, you can see God's hand working in your life. As we go through some defense of the faith points, we see this here with these records and these chronicles. The secular Greek historian Herodotus records that the Persian kings had a very organized and methodical and detailed way of keeping official records. That is brought out here. This is yet one more support for the historical accuracy of the book of Esther and the rest of the Bible, for that matter. We're going to see more of it before we get out of the book of Esther. Steve, starting at verse 4, let's find out what happens next when the king and Haman appears. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman come in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. At the beginning of that, in verse 4, Haman has appeared in the palace, and the king asks, who's in the court? And says, well, Haman, it just so happens, Haman is the one guy that happens to be there early in the morning asking the king a question. Another coincidence, Steve, we see again God's providential hand working through this. We also have here the fact that Haman, even Haman, had to ask permission to get in to see the king. He couldn't just barge in, which leaves credence to the idea that Esther, that just walked in, was indeed risking her life. Even Haman had to stand outside and wait until the king requested him in. The third thing I see about this, Steve, is Haman had come there very early in the morning to do evil. He had gotten up early to do evil because he's what he's doing is asking the king to murder somebody for no more or less than he didn't like what the man was doing. Evil, it seems, gets up very early 
and starts the day doing evil very early in the morning. I think, Steve, as you said in our last session, human nature doesn't change. There's people in our day that start very early in the morning doing evil, and they tend to stay up very late at night doing evil. Human nature is full of that. Unless we're following the Word of God and intentionally wanting Him to give us a new heart and change us from the inside out, then we're no better than Haman. We'll be doing evil from early morning to late at night. You got to remember that Haman has already gotten permission from the king to murder or kill Mordecai, along with all of Mordecai's people, the Jewish people. The problem that Haman has for Mordecai is it's still about eight or nine months off. Haman can't even wait, even though he's gotten the king to agree to let him write a decree to kill all the Jewish people, which would include Mordecai. He can't wait. He's got to get rid of of Mordecai right now, right at this time. His wife gave him the great advice of, well, just go ahead and build gallows overnight and go to the king and have him hang the next day. This obsession that Haman has is something that is driving him to not make good decisions. You get the picture that if Haman recounted in the last chapter all the riches that he had and all the great blessings that he had, Well, you don't get those riches by being a stupid person. You either get them by being a smart, intelligent person or being a conniving, scheming person. But even being a conniving, scheming person takes intelligence. But because of this hatred that he has for Mordecai, it's causing him to make some very silly mistakes that's actually going to cost him his life. Haman just so happened to be in the palace at the time when the king had needed somebody to do a request for him. And it just so happens that the king didn't tell Haman initially who he was trying to honor. He asked this question, what should be done to someone that the king honors? What was the idea that Haman came up with to honor such a person? Haman was thinking it was him. What idea did he come up with to honor? Well, that's the first thing to call out before we go into that, is that the king says, hey, I want to honor somebody what is it that we should do? First thing is, Haman goes, okay, well, who else in the kingdom that would be that he'd want to honor other than me? That's a great prideful thing. There's that proverb that says, pride goes before destruction. There needs to be a footnote, see chapter, Esther chapter six. Haman was indeed very prideful and self-centered. He immediately thinks, who else could it be but me? What happens, Steve, to very prideful self-centered people. I mean, we've all seen people around us that are very self-centered. What happens to these people in, in our day and in the circumstances they get into? Ultimately, they distance themselves from people or people distance themselves from them. If you get to a person that is totally self-centered, that's all about him and the world revolves around him, people eventually don't want to be around them. They want to distance themselves from them because It seems like every situation that might happen, it always comes back to them and because they're the center of the attention. But it does, it causes them to just not make good decisions because not everything revolves around yourself. It should be the exact opposite. Jesus says we should be meek. Jesus said we should be mild. Jesus said we should be peacemakers, that those are the ones that are out there and will be blessed and and find happiness in God. If a person is self-centered, 
They just ultimately make silly decisions. People that are self-centered, as you said, they generally make enemies of people because nobody wants to be around somebody that's always talking about themselves. The advice I would give to myself and all of our listeners, if if you're having trouble making friends, maybe it's you because, again, maybe it's, it's us that are self-centered. I'm reminded, Steve, of I was in a lecture by a very well-known Bible teacher, and he was supposed to be giving advice to young seminary students. He talked the entire time about himself. I found it very unpleasant simply because this was supposed to be advice to younger people that are getting mentored. And all this famous teacher did was talk about himself the entire time. Same thing with this man, Haman. If we apply this to us, Steve, one, how do I know whether it's me that's being self-centered? Because you probably don't realize this. And what could I do to try to make sure that I'm not self-centered? What can I do practically to make sure that I'm focused on others rather than just me all the time? Pray. Pray for God to take that away from you. One indicator is there's many, many indicators. But if you've ever been in a setting, Glenn, to where you have people, different people recanting stories, and there's this one person that no matter what the story is, they have done something that's the same thing. And many times it's something a little bit better. Those type of people are self-centered people. If you find yourself trying to one-up others on a conversation, that's an indicator that you're trying to bring the focus back onto yourself. You need to stop and you need to pray to God and say, Lord, I don't want to be the center of attention. I want to serve you. I want you to be the center of attention, not me. Please help me to not do those things. Help me not to be the center or call attention to myself. Help me to be able to help others and call attention to you through my actions and not me through my actions. You got it exactly right. Because what I thought of is the way to make sure I'm not self-centered is to focus on others, is to focus on serving others. Good practical advice. Go to your pastor, go to your church leaders and say, where can I serve others around the church? The idea is to make other people happy and not necessarily do things that that are feel good to me all the time. I guarantee you, the pastor will have things to do to serve others around the church. There's a never-ending list at every church I've ever seen of things that could be done to serve others. There's always people in need. I, I remember, Steve, over in the New Testament, what did Christ say? He said, the first will be last and the last will be first. If we're always wanting to be first and focused on how good I am, like Haman was, that's the person that's going to be last. It's the people that serve others, make the other person happy. If we focus on making other people happy, then we get a sense of reward. It works in marriages, too. If you focus on making your spouse happy, the marriage will be happier. Now, Glenn, I got us a little bit sidetracked because your original question is, what was it that Haman suggested that be done for the person that the that the king wants to honor. And I took us down a little, little trail there. What he suggested was, let's bring out some robes that the king has worn and put them on the person. And let's bring out the king's horse that he rode and put him on the horse and then put the crown that the king has, has worn and put it on his head and then parade him out into the square, town square, and give him the glory and honor of telling all the people, this person is being honored by the king 
And you can tell because he's wearing the king's robe and he's riding the king's horse. That's the suggestion that Haman gave to the king to honor this person. Of course, Haman thought, oh, this is going to happen to me. That's why he made that suggestion. What does that tell us about what Haman really wanted? How did Haman picture himself? He wanted glory and fame. Because he had just recounted in the last chapter all the riches he had. He's not thinking that something monetary should be given to him. He's thinking that something to glorify him and honor him. That's the thing that the king needs to do to honor this person. We have now Haman pretty puffed up and thinking that it's going to be him that gets all the glory and and honor. The king says something in the next few verses that deflates his balloon. Let's start reading in Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 10. says this, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh his wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. How do you think, Steve, that Haman felt? He was all puffed up thinking, this is what's going to happen to me. Now the king flips the script and says, oh yeah, great idea. Go do it to Mordecai. He was mortified over Mordecai. He was just devastated because here is his greatest enemy. It's the one person that has caused him to want to kill a whole group of people. And it's the one person who will not honor him. And he is forced to go out and lead this person around and giving him glory and honor. It just totally devastates Haman altogether. The adjectives on describing his mood are are sort of inadequate. This would have been total humiliation. He would have been completely debased at this point, as bad as he could be as far as an emotional state. Down in verse 12 on the way home, he actually covers his head. He didn't want anybody to even see him. He's he's trying to hide. Think of it, Steve. Here was Haman, originally upset because everybody bows down to me. Everybody bows down to me except this one man, Mordecai, and he's the one that I'm really against. He had developed his hatred of Mordecai. And now Haman has to be Mordecai's servant. He has to be Mordecai's servant leading his horse around, which is a fairly lowly job. Haman was as emotionally distraught as you can imagine. The irony, Steve, is that he didn't have to feel that way. If we think about how God's advice to people is, how does he advise us? Always view the other person as more valuable than us. Right, We're here as Christians, we should serve others. The New Testament, God tells us to glory in our sufferings. The reason why Haman was so devastated was because of his pride. He should really, if he were right with God, he should have been able to say, look at, look, God honored this other person. How great for him. 
And we ought to be able to do the same thing. If somebody else wins a contest, that how great for them they won. Why can't we glory in other people's successes instead of having jealousy? It was jealousy and pride is what's causing all of Haman's problems. If he would have learned the ways of the Lord God, he would have had a meek and humble spirit, and he would have held other people's more important than himself. He would have gloried in Mordecai's successes. But because Haman was so prideful, so self-centered, so focused on himself, that's why he's totally devastated. And that sets up this emotional state because there at the end, He's just totally tore down. Glenn, can I bring out one other thing about how disconnected this king is to the situation or all situations that we've seen? Back there in verse 10, he says, do so for Mordecai the Jew. Now, this decree had gone out that on the 12th month of the 13th day of the 12th month, kill all the Jews in your kingdom. You're going to kill all the Jews. Here, the king is saying, go honor Mordecai the Jew. The king doesn't even make a connection to this decree. And if you go back to chapter three and see where Haman comes to the king, Haman just says, hey, there's this group of people that have different laws and they're a danger to you. We need to wipe them out. And the king says, okay, and gives him the signet ring. The king doesn't even know what's in his own decree, or at least that you would seem that that's an indication here because he wants to give this Jew honor and glory, but yet on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Jews in his kingdom are going to be wiped out. This king is just disconnected all the way around. The king is disconnected, and he has very little value on human life. The king, several times in this book, makes a off-the-cuff decision to, oh, yeah, go go kill those people. And in this case, didn't make apparently didn't make the connection that he had decreed that Jewish people should be killed. We have this situation here where the king is, is indeed sort of disconnected. In verse 13, we have Haman's wife and his friends telling Haman that, oh, you're not going to win. If Mordecai's a Jew, you're not going to win. Well, what did these those exact people tell him back in chapter 5? They told him, oh, go kill Mordecai. Now, the very next day, they're telling him, oh, if he's Jewish, you're the one that's going to get killed. Yeah, isn't it great to have a wife like that? That tells you one thing one day and tells you something else the other day. I don't know. This This story just keeps on getting crazier and crazier. Haman is in this emotional state that is completely devastated. He is distraught. He's he's almost crying in the pages of Scripture. And right in the midst where he's at his emotional valley, the, the worst he could get, here comes the knock on the door, and it's the king's guards. A hurry, you're, 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 you're late for the banquet. He is in this emotional state, rushed into the banquet, which, again, it just so happens that the king came to get him at just the right point where he's the most emotionally distraught. What a coincidence, because that's going to play into the next scene, which happens, which is the second banquet. Why does it seem, Steve, that Haman is getting pushed around by circumstances? Because God is back in the background working through people's free will actions in order to bring these things about. As you've so aptly put so many times, God has a solution before we even realize that there's a problem. 
God is in control of the circumstances. Situations are happening so fast that Haman can't really keep up with them. I think, Steve, that this is a good time to point out the difference between how a child of God looks at what happens to them in the world and how a lost person looks at how the situations in the world. To a lost person, situations are just happening. The world is chaos. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Bad things come and go. We've had some famous atheist philosophers that say there's no purpose in the world, clear to the bottom. It's purposeless. And there's no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference is some of the quotes they give. To a non-Christian, a non-believer, life happens to them. And the challenge there is I have to be strong enough to overcome all these circumstances that are happening to me. That's the lost person. To the Christian, the child of God, they realize that God has a purpose. God has a design and that things are happening in my life because of a reason and a purpose. And God's using all these things. It's my job just to submit and obey to God's will. And I can enjoy these circumstances. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter say over in the New Testament, we should take joy in suffering. That these situations that happen don't happen for no reason at all. These situations happen because of God's purposes and God's will. And he brings us into situations to teach us things and to use us in circumstances. It's a vast difference. A non-Christian and a Christian can look at the same events and see two very different things. The Christian sees the hand of God working in all this, and people like Haman are just getting bounced around like a pinball in a game. That's what I see here in this, Steve. We also started out this session talking about, we didn't know why Esther delayed the banquet to the next day, but look at what has happened. Overnight and into the morning and throughout the day, Haman has just been totally overthrown into his idea and his plan and his plot. He's totally discombobulated is a good word to say. He's going to go in to this next banquet with Esther in a quandary, not knowing what's going on. What do we learn from the book of Esther? One of the things we learn that can that we can apply in all of our lives today is that to the child of God, circumstances are happening for a reason. And we can relax and take comfort and knowing that God's in control. God's not having to get up in the morning and read the news to figure out what's going on. He does indeed have the solution in place before we even realize the problems there. He's in control. We can relax and enjoy the ride because that's what we get when we reason through the Bible back here in Esther. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next time. May God bless you.